Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Chapter by chapter keeps flying by, and soon we will be done with Matthew. Uh, to give you an insight of what we're doing, we're going to spend some weeks then after Matthew speaking about the church, what the church is about, and then our goal is to go through the whole Bible in 2006. But we're closing up on Matthew, and I want to focus our attention on the text, the first ten verses, to set it in context. So let's read the text this morning. Matthew writes, Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him up to Pilate the governor. And then when Judas, who had betrayed Him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And then he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Our text begins here in verse 1 with a brief word concerning the trial of Jesus Christ. It is really a continuation from verse 68 in which Jesus was found guilty by the religious leaders for blasphemy. Matthew interrupts the saga of the trial in verses 69 through 75 by telling what took place with Peter. And then he brings it back again in verse 27. Now, we see here in 27 that some time has elapsed. It says, when the morning had come. Apparently, the session with the chief priests had broken up. The wee hours of the morning, shortly after the cock crowed, they went home for a few hours of rest, and then they reconvened early in the morning to officially pronounce the guilty sentence. This was actually the third phase of the trial of Jesus, the religious trial. First, he went to Annas, the former high priest. Then he went to Caiaphas. And then they they slept for a while, and then they went back and formally declared him guilty while the sun was up sentencing him to death. However, being under Roman rule, the Jews were not permitted by law to put anybody to death. Their worst criminals had to be brought before the Romans who would decide their fate. And it was only when the Romans found them guilty and worthy of death that they would be executed then for the crime. So we see verse 2, Jesus being led away and delivered up to Pontius Pilate, the governor beginning then to decide the fate of Jesus. And we will see the Roman trial next week. We've seen the wrap-up of the religious trial. In verse 11, next week, we will see how the Roman trial begins. But before that time, Matthew places this story of Judas 
right in between these two. And it, it's a perfect place for this story. It's when it happened. And Judas experienced in this story what we call worldly sorrow. It's worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow that feels the pain of sin. It's a sorrow that confesses the guilt of sin. It's the sorrow that makes an effort even to remove the consequences of sin. But in the end, it's a worldly sorrow that finds no comfort. Because it's a sorrow that falls short of repentance. And it never knows the blessing of forgiveness where true comfort comes from. I get this phrase, worldly sorrow, from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In fact, if you want to hold your finger here in Matthew 27... And turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to show you about worldly sorrow and what it is about. Because that is the story of Judas. is worldly sorrow. Paul had written a letter to these Corinthians. We don't have it any longer. It was technically 3 Corinthians. It was the third letter that he had written to them. It was a letter full of rebuke for their sinful behavior. And the letter pierced them to the heart and convicted them of sin and caused them to mourn. As Paul received news back from the Corinth, this letter had caused much grief and turmoil in their hearts. He said this, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. He said, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow though only for a while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And there it is. The sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, when Paul wrote this section, he said that he regretted the letter that he sent to the Corinthians because it caused pain in the lives of the Corinthians. But yet, on the other hand, he didn't regret it because that pain led to repentance. They had turned from their sins that Paul had pointed out to them in their letter. And so it ended well. And in this case, it is true that the end justifies the means. The surgeon doesn't regret the pain made by the incision and the recovery afterwards when the patient is eventually healed. Right? Right? This week, I had opportunity to play surgeon. Our five-year-old daughter, daughter Hannah was uh, playing outside on some wood which was had some splinters in it. And she r- was sliding down some of this wood and she received a rip in her jean shorts and received a sliver right in her bottom, right over here. And she came in crying immensely because of the pain. And so my wife and I took her to the bathroom to see what happened. And, and we took off her shorts and she had a swim trunks underneath that. But we saw... What was causing the pain? She had a piece of wood an inch and a half long that had come into her skin and then back out again. So kind of in and out. And it was quite obvious to us why she was experiencing so much pain. So as I looked and I surveyed the situation and 
My father being a surgeon, I've seen this thing before. I, I took this liver and pulled it right out. And it caused even more pain as I was ripping it out and she let out even more screams and yells. But soon the pain was gone and the sliver was removed. And you know, I didn't regret causing Hannah any more pain than she was in because I knew the result. The sliver was removed and she would feel much better in a matter of moments. And so also with the letter that Paul wrote in the reading of this letter to the church, it caused much pain to the members who were living in sin. And, and Paul convicted them of their unrighteousness. And yet, as they repented of their sin, it demonstrated that they respond rightly to Paul's correction. And as the results were good in the end, Paul didn't regret the letter at all. But then he said that here in verse 10, there is a sorrow that's according to the will of God. That's what the Corinthians did. The godly sorrow. It's a sorrow that leads to repentance, which leads then to life. But in verse 10 also, he alludes to another kind of sorrow. This is the worldly sorrow. This is the sorrow that produces death. And this is the sorrow that Judas had. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 27. In our text this morning, we're going to see three characteristics of worldly sorrow in the life of Judas. Last week, we looked at Peter's denials. The sin of denying Christ is what Peter did. And we found in that text a warning and a hope. It was a warning in that we, like Peter, might easily fall into sin as he did. And yet we found hope with Peter. Because like Peter, we too may be restored and forgiven of our trespasses. And as, as a result of that, the story of Peter is really good news. Because he becomes an example for us of one who is restored and he eventually became mighty in the church. God used him in amazing ways to build his church. But here with Judas this morning, there's only a warning. There's no window of hope here. There's no good news with Judas. Jesus called him in John 17, verse 12, the son of perdition. He was under the control of Satan. And Jesus said that it would have been good for Judas if he had not been born. See, Judas is today suffering eternally for his sin. There's no happy ending. And the sorrow that he had didn't lead to repentance. It was worldly sorrow. And so really the question before us this morning, based on last week and based on this week, is this. Are you a Peter? Are you a Judas? Perhaps even in the ways that you deal with your sins. Are you a Peter? Are you a Judas? I remember reading a story of a Chinese Christian named Wang Ming Dao. He was born into a Christian home in China in 1900. And his faith in the Lord was strong. In 1924, he began a Bible study with a handful of believers near his home in Peking. And the church, this handful of believers quickly formed into a church. And he became a pastor of this church. And it continued to grow and grow and grow. That 13 years later, they built an auditorium big enough to seat 500 people in China. But in 1949, when the communist flag was hoisted over Peking, his life was dramatically changed. His religious freedom was drastically reduced as the government cracked down on all Christians, but especially pastors. In 1955, 
He was in prison for preaching the gospel and he spent over a year in prison and finally was worn down by the communists and agreed to join the three self-patriotic movement and to preach on its behalf, which is basically the, the legalized church, which is sort of a sham because it prevents the people from preaching the true gospel. And as he bent, as he, will, as he said, well, I will join them, he was let free but in doing so, Wang Ming Dao felt that he had betrayed his Lord and Master before the whole world. And such a decision caused turmoil in his soul. And it was said that he would wander about the streets in his home saying, I am Peter! I am Peter! But there were other times when the despair got too much where he said, I am Judas! I am Judas! The tension in his heart between whether he was a Peter or whether he was a, a Judas. Certainly both of them betrayed the Lord. One was restored and one wasn't. But the Lord proved faithful to sustain him. Showed that he was a Peter. Once released from prison, he never preached on behalf of the Three Self movement. After a few months, this became clear to the communists. They said, well, is he going to preach for us or not? Is he going to join up with this church or not? And he was faithful to the gospel and didn't join up with that. So as the communist government found that out, they imprisoned him again, sent him to life in prison where he suffered greatly. Illnesses often mistreated. Finally, in 1979, after 24 years in prison, he was finally released. His testimony was this. He says, It was the Word of God that gave me the very best moment of my life when I overcame my lies. If it were not for God's protection, I would be dead by now but it was the Word of God that rescued me. And in his mind, he found comfort that he was a Peter and not a Judas. So the question for you this morning is this, are you a Peter or are you a Judas? As you deal with your sin, do you deal with your sin like Peter did? Or do you deal with your sin like Judas did? Because we're going to look at how worldly sorrow deals with its sin. Let's look at our first characteristic of worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, number one, Response to consequences. Right, look at verse 3. It says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. See, it wasn't the sin of Judas that gave him remorse. It was the results of the sin that saddened his soul. And how often does this happen? A man spends far too much time in the office neglecting his wife at home and the marriage turns sour. And the man then expresses his great sorrow over what has happened. But is he sorrowful for his sin? Or is he sorrowful for the consequences of his sin? Too often, this man will grieve the difficulties of his marriage rather than the sin of loving his work too much. Or a boy is caught shoplifting from a store and brought down to the police station. He may well be sorrowful, tears flowing from his eyes as his parents come and finally bail him out. But he may grieve because he disappointed his parents. And because when his family finds out, he's going to be made fun of. But he may not even grieve over the shoplifting because he's done it before and got away with it. And he will do it again. That's worldly sorrow that grieves for the consequences rather than for the sin. The child is disciplined and expresses much sorrow, cries much in the discipline process, but it, 
isn't the sin that makes them cry many times. It's the pain of the disobedience that moves their heart to sorrow. And they're, they're sorrowing at the consequences rather than the sin. And that is exactly what was the case with Judas. See, it wasn't his sin that led him to sorrow. It was the consequences that produced his remorse. I mean, you can see that there in verse 3, where it says a little word, when. It was when Judas saw that he had been condemned. It was the moment that he saw the consequences of his sin of what it meant to Jesus that he really began to be sorrowful. We have no indication. As far as we know, Judas felt no remorse when he agreed to betray Jesus. I'll take the 30 pieces of silver, thank you very much. I'll figure out a good time. And he said so with a smile on his face. There's no indication, as far as we know, that Judas, Judas felt any remorse when he actually betrayed Jesus. He took him and kissed him on the lips and said, Rabbi... Probably with a smile on his face. But it was only when Judas actually saw that Jesus had been condemned to die that he felt the pain of sin. And that's the point of the word when. It's when he saw the effects of sin that he grieved. I don't know what he was thinking. I'm not sure why it was. You know, perhaps he didn't think through all the implications of everything of what he was doing when he betrayed Jesus. Maybe he didn't actually believe the Sanhedrin would find him guilty. Maybe he didn't believe that the Sanhedrin would actually put him to death. Perhaps he began to think for the first time about his reputation. Maybe that's even self-seeking. Oh, I'm going to be responsible for the death of Jesus. And the implications down through the ages. He knew how tax gatherers were treated. They were traitors against the Roman government. But Judas betrayed a man who'd who'd always been faithful to him. Never had Jesus treated Judas badly. Never had Jesus spoken wrongly to him. Never had Jesus sought for his harm. But Judas turned his back on all that kindness and betrayed the supreme lover of his soul. In fact, Judas' reputation today is so bad that the name stopped with Judas. I mean, people don't name their children Judas anymore. There are a bunch of Peters around. There are a bunch of Johns around. There are a bunch of Andrews around. A bunch of Thomases around. There aren't any Judases running around in this world. And perhaps even he began to think of the shame of the last Judas that would walk the planet. We don't know, but we do know that seeing Jesus condemn was too much for him to take. It is interesting that those who wait until consequences are often not really repentant for their sin. I remember in the car one time listening to a Christian radio and uh, along the radio program came a subject of pornography. And uh, a man and his wife were being interviewed who had written some type of book on the subject of counseling people out of this sin. And they counseled many marriages through this devastating sin. And they made a great insightful statement on this radio show. They said that the one who confesses his sin before being discovered has a much higher probability of escaping its grasp than does the one who confesses his sin only after being discovered. The reason is really simple, right? When you're finally found out, there are a host of other circumstances that come your way. Maybe you're sorrowful for your turn of circumstances. It may be that 
You're sad because the shame you brought upon yourself for the damage you've done to your marriage, for the effects upon your children, the embarrassment you're going to face. And if those are the things that lead someone to then confess about it, this is worldly sorrow. But it's when they're sorrowful for the sin first before the consequences that, ah, now there's great hope for repentance. Because worldly sorrow won't lead to repentance because such a sorrow isn't for sin. It's for the consequences of sin. And there is, let me tell you, there's a world of difference between the two. And though we're dealing this morning with worldly sorrow of an unrepentant soul in our text, really its application filters down to us and our sins we commit every day. Are you sorrowful for your sins before holy God? Are you sorrowful for the consequences of your sin before God? Godly sorrow responds to sin, but worldly sorrow responds to consequences. Well, let's look at the second characteristic of worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, and this is where it gets tricky a little bit, may look like repentance. Those who have a worldly sorrow may feel bad about what they've done. They may confess what wrong they have done. They may seek to make restitution for the wrong. But all of it might fall short of true repentance. Right? I mean, look at, look at things that can happen when a worldly sorrow comes. It may look like repentance in that they feel remorse. Worldly sorrow can feel remorse. Right? Look at how Matthew describes the feelings of Judas. Matthew says that he felt remorse. Your translation might be something different. It might say that Judas changed his mind. Maybe was seized with remorse or was remorseful. All these translations are good ones. I think that the New American Standard is about best. He felt remorse, signifying an inner attitude of sorrow and regret. This word focuses attention upon emotions. It, it looks upon a past decision or a past action that was done and it says, man, that, you know, that really wasn't good and I wish I hadn't have done that and just a sorrow in the emotions. In fact, that's the word that Paul used when talking about regretting the letter he'd written to the Corinthians. He said that he didn't regret it in that it was the truth, but he did regret it in the sense that it hurt them, meaning that it, it, it stirred his emotions for the worse when he thought about the pain that he caused the people. Some translations talk here about how Judas repented, but I, I feel like that's a poor translation. It's more that he, he just inwardly felt really bad. He felt remorse. It affected his feelings, made him sorrowful, but it fell short of true repentance. You know, it looked a lot like repentance. When someone repents of their sin, it often comes with a flood of emotions, with the realization of everything that was done. When they, when they realize that their sin before God, and then they begin to see how God looks upon their sin, it convicts their heart. You know, this week I read a sermon by a man named Edward Payson. And uh, the thrust of this sermon was such that he said that we need to understand how heaven looks at our sin and how heaven sees it. Because when we see things, perspective is everything. You can look way outside to, you know, some blade of grass and it looks so small and insignificant. But if you come up close to it and examine it, it looks a lot different. Right? You see it's a little bit torn or you see it's bent or you see it's crushed over. You can observe many more things. And that's how it is with our sin from heaven. When we see things just around us in our sin and we look at our own sin and evaluate it, it looks different than if we go to heaven and look at our sin for what it is. 
And repentance sees what sin really is like and will feel remorse over, over the sin and will produce these same feelings. But in the end, it will produce repentance. It will produce a change. But with worldly sorrow, it's just the emotions. It's just the feeling. And that's where worldly sorrow is deceptive, looking like repentance. Also, here's another thing where it looks like repentance. Worldly sorrow also confesses sin. I mean, the feelings of Judas led him to confess his sin. That's what verse 4 says. Look here. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, if you think about this, this comment is, is very interesting. Judas is confessing his sin. He's not hiding it. He's not sweeping it under the rug. It's open for all the world to see. But, you know, it's interesting. His confession didn't mean much. Sure, he got the facts right. He testified to the innocence of Jesus. He said all the right words. He confessed his own sin. But in the end, Judas knew nothing of forgiveness. And so for that reason, even I believe these words of verse 4 are more for us than it ever was for Judas. And you think about this. If anyone could testify to the sinfulness of Jesus, it was Judas. He was one of the disciples. He walked with Jesus for three years. He was an intimate companion with Christ. And let me ask you, who knows your sin better than those close to you? Husbands and wives know the sin of each other much better than anybody in the church ever does. Children will see the sins of parents far better than other parents will see. Than other people will see. Than they own will see. Right? Because you're close. You're intimate. And who was better able to see the sin of Jesus than Judas? And secondly, who was more willing to witness against Jesus than Judas? He agreed to betray him in the garden. And he would have certainly been willing to testify against him at the trial. But the silence of Judas at the trial and his confession here about finding no fault in Jesus, being innocent man, speaks volumes of the sinless sacrifice that Jesus was. He was the spotless lamb offered up for our sins. But here's the point this morning as we look at worldly sorrow. Confession of sin doesn't necessarily mean repentance. It may mean repentance. And repentance has to have confession of sin. But just because confession of sin is there doesn't mean that repentance follows. This is the point, right? It only means that a sinner has been cornered, has no other option but to admit the truth, right? When a criminal stands before a judge and the the sentence is brought upon him and he is asked how he pleads, the criminal can easily say, I plead guilty and have no regret about his actions at all. In a similar way, a sinner can speak the words of confession and yet have a heart that's all wrong and all bad and not leading to repentance. Because, listen, a repentant heart will, is a change of heart that will lead to a change in behavior. And we don't see that in Judas. We see nothing transformed. We see nothing changed. His guilt still remained. And rather than making it right with Jesus, who he should have, sinned against him, gone, confessed it, Right? He sought to make restitution, which is really a third thing why how uh, worldly sorrow might look like repentance. 
This is amazing what Judas did. He took action. His confession went beyond mere words. He tried to make up for his sin. Look back at verse 3. He felt remorse, returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Right? And the sense is that these were the exact pieces of silver that had been given to him. Right? He went to the chief priests and he pulled out his money bag and he showed his 30 pieces of silver. And he said, this is, this is the money that you gave me that I betrayed Jesus with. Here, here, I don't want it anymore. Here, give it back. He's an innocent man. You would have had that? It's the same coins. He, he didn't spend this money. He knew that it was ill-gotten money. He knew the truth of Proverbs 10, verse 2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit. He knew there was no profit in this money. He was trying to make it back. And maybe he recalled in his mind the story of Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. I mean, he was such a good tax collector that he was over many tax collectors. He became a very rich man. And Jesus, in Jericho, on his way up to Jerusalem, came into the house of Zacchaeus. And you remember what Zacchaeus said? He said, if I have half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And you think about the timing of that. It's on Jesus' way to Jerusalem, and on His way to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. This was maybe like less than a week ago that Judas heard and saw Zacchaeus pledge to give his money back to make restitution. And I say that's a good thing. It's a good thing to, to make money back. In, in fact, I would encourage you, if you've stolen any money, go back and make it right. This past week, I heard a friend of mine tell a story of a pre-Christian experience that he had. He was working in a lumberyard, loading cars with lumber. And during the month of December, the lumberyard sold Christmas trees. And quite often, the customers would ask those who worked out in the yard, were they to pay them out in the yard or were they to go inside to pay? And on a few occasions, this man confessed that he accepted the money outside and put it right in his pocket. He said that he was never caught. He remembers scalping some terrific seats at a rock concert at one point. This money. But when he gave his life to Christ sought the Lord's forgiveness, he found it. He was at ease, but he sought to make restitution. And so, ten years later, he marched into that same lumberyard, walked up to the manager he didn't even know, explained what had taken place ten years earlier, says, here's $150, here, will you forgive me? And his conscience was cleansed with that. In many ways, that's what Judas was doing. But you know, Judas was wrong. It's, it's not... The things outwardly that made him wrong, it was the things inwardly that made him wrong. He was seeking to make some kind of restitution for his evil deeds so as to calm his conscience. But see, the Christian has a calm conscience in Christ. And the Christian seeks restitution because it's the right thing to do. But Judas, we know this wasn't the case with him because his conscience was never calmed. He offered the money to them. And they refused it. You know what he did? Take it yourself then! That's what he did. 
That wasn't a calm conscience. That was trying to pay back for his sins, to try to try to make it. If they couldn't have taken, he could have set it down and left. But apparently, in his throwing it there, he threw it in anger. We see that what took place afterwards, his suicide shows that his conscience wasn't calmed. And what Judas modeled here was what's called penance. It's not repentance, it is penance. It's an attempt to make up for the wrong you did. The idea is to show how bad you feel about the wrong, to to show God that you really mean it, and by that means, help secure forgiveness and help calm your conscience. The Roman Catholic Church today practices this very thing. If you commit a sin, you're told in the Catholic Church to go and confess it to a priest to assign you certain duties to do. These duties are called penance. Often the priest will come and say to you, we'll say ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. And then the priest has authority through the church to assure the parishioner that temporal punishment for that sin will be removed after you say those prayers. You'll spend a few less years in purgatory as a result of your deeds. But such a practice is not biblical. It's penance. It's what Judas tried to do. Now, before you jump on the Catholics, all right, for having it so wrong, realize that this practice is alive and well in the Protestant church. It's alive and well in your heart. Oh, it's not outward. It's not something we talk about. But there's something within us that will seek to make up for our sins. I mean, we naturally want to do something good for God to show that we were sorrowful for our sin. God, I'll be faithful in my devotions this week. Or... God, I'll go to church this weekend or I will read my religious book rather than watching the television set. Right? We can look forward. We can also look back. We can say, but God, you know, I'm not so bad. I mean, look at all the things I've done. I've been president of the Sunday school. I've been this and that. I've received, you know, the Clubber Award at Awana. Look at all these first things I've done. That is a form of penance that seeps into our minds because it's natural with all of us. I love the advice of a pastor named C.J. Mahaney. He said it really well. He was preaching one time on the subject of pride. And he said this. I concur with his words absolutely. He says, There is this daily tendency and temptation to seek forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. He said, Is it not a daily tendency to assume that, to assume that when I sin at some point tomorrow... In order to compensate for that sin, I will now make certain pledges and promises to God in order to quiet my conscience. Does that ring true in your heart? I know it rings true in mine. Is that I think of the sin that I commit and I think of the, the righteousness I have and I seek to say and bank on my righteousness and say, God, look, look at this. Look at, doesn't, doesn't, this doesn't this work? And we sound like Muslims or Jews. Balancing everything off. And C.J. Mahaney continues, says, I guarantee at some point tomorrow, and I back this guarantee, you will do this. You will seek to draw comfort and confidence from your obedience to God. Be careful, he says, about using the means of grace as a means of merit. When I say means of grace, I mean all the wonderful spiritual disciplines that I only want to encourage and promote. And I would encourage them and promote them as well. Prayer, scripture reading, you know, saturating your mind with the things of God, listening to Christian radio, doing all those things. I only want to promote them. But it is possible to take those means of grace by which God works in our life to grow us, 
to use them in our minds as a means of merit. He says, as I devote myself to the study of God's Word, it is possible for me to turn that means of experiencing grace into a means of merit and to pray more confidently simply because I've devoted myself devotionally to an hour of studying the Scripture. How often do we gain our confidence through our obedience to pray? But C.J. Mahaney suggests, whenever you finish any sort of devotional exercise, close your Bible and make this declaration to God. Lord, I thank you for how I have benefited from the study of your word. But I want to declare to you that this practice is not a means of meriting forgiveness, justification or acceptance. I can never, through my obedience, merit what only Christ could achieve in light of your holiness and in light of my sinfulness. You know what he's talking about? How easy is it to look at our own diligence in following hard after God and thinking in some way that will balance the sin that we do. And in so doing, listen, we're just like Judas. In some ways trying to balance our sin and calm our conscience, but worldly sorrow will do these things. It will seek to make restitution that will look like repentance, but in the fact that it fails to deal with your inner conscience, it fails to deal with the crucial aspect of repentance, which is your heart. Well, the chief priests and the elders had nothing to do with this. They said in verse 4, what is that to us? See that yourself. In other words, listen, what's done is done. This is your money. You deal with it as fit. At this point, the chief priests should have said, Oh, we have a, someone's coming forth saying he's innocent. I mean, think about those on death row today. If some new evidence comes forward or some new testimony comes or some new evidence, what happens? The process is stopped until they can investigate further. But the chief priests and the elders of the city of Jerusalem, they weren't interested in justice at all. They were interested in putting Christ to death. And they said, you go deal with it yourself. We're not going to touch him. Shows you also more how unjust the trials are. And sadly, Judas followed their advice exactly. He sought to deal with it himself. Verse 5 tells us, I've alluded to already, he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary, departed, he went away and hanged himself. Well, it shows a third characteristic of worldly sorrow. Not only does worldly sorrow respond to consequences, not only does worldly sorrow look like repentance, but worldly sorrow ends in death. The result of the sin of Judas was that it ended in him taking his own life. Now, I'm not saying that worldly sorrow always produces suicide. That's not the case. In extreme cases, it does, and it will. But what I am saying is this. Worldly sorrow is on the path to death. Isn't that what Paul said? The sorrow of the world produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 And Judas was merely on that path to the uttermost, ended in suicide. But for all of us as well, worldly sorrow leads to death. You know, see, there are two paths in this life and you are walking on one of them. You'll either walk on the path that leads to life and immortality or you walk on the path that leads to death and destruction for eternity. There's just two ways. It's, it's one road. And you either go this way to life or you go that way to death. And the path 
of worldly sorrow is the path of sin. And the Bible tells us, kids, the wages of sin is, is death. And so we know that the worldly sorrow is on the path onto sin is on the way to death. And there's only way, one way to get off that road is to turn from that road and start walking on the path to life, which is repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. This is the message of the Bible. It's repentance and forgiveness. A turning from sin and a turning to God. A turning from trusting your own righteousness to trusting in the righteousness of another, of Jesus Christ. And genuine repentance leads to life, but worldly sorrow leads only to death. How appropriate it is that the last five verses of our text this morning talk about death and burial. I mean, look at verse 6. The chief priests took the pieces of silver. So here they are. They had to go around. They had to clean up all the silver pieces. They went in and they picked it up. I'm going to leave some of that for the kids who get their notes, okay? So you can race up here. Advantage to the kids who sit in front. You have the pieces of silver they had to pick up. And they knew full well that it was defiled money. They said it's not lawful to put into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. They weren't about to take the silver and walk back to the offering box back there and put it in the offering box. Because they knew it was defiled money. So what are they going to do with defiled money? Well, they're going to buy a field of blood. And in fact, it's interesting here what they call it. Verse 6. They call this money the price of blood. And even inherent in that phrase is also this theme that comes running through this passage of the innocence of Jesus. It's, it's the price of blood. It's the price of, of death. It is the very thing that led to the death of Christ, though He was innocent. And rather than contributing funds to the needs of the temple, they purchased a field which they transformed into a cemetery. Verse 7, they counseled together and with the money bought the potter's field. <clears throat> That's a burial place for strangers. So stained was this money that they wouldn't bury Jews in this field. This was a field for the Gentiles or for the strangers who died. So stained was this money that it even influenced the name of the field that was bought. Look what it says there, verse 8. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. That is, the the field of, of blood bought with the price of blood is a declaration for that generation that this is an unrighteous piece of property that was bought with unrighteous money that achieved an unrighteous end of putting this man to death who was innocent. You know, when Matthew wrote this gospel, most, um, most scholars think that Matthew wrote this gospel 30 years after the death of Christ. And as he says right there at the end of verse 8, it's to this day it's been called the field of blood. That's a whole generation that saw and could identify the field of blood. There's a field of blood over there. But with the price of blood, the cemetery still testified to the wickedness of the religious leaders. They knew the money they'd given to Judas was used to betray innocent blood. But all of this was in the prophetic plan of God, as it says in verses 9 and 10. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, 
And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, there's much discussion about these words in the commentaries about this quotation. This quotation has led many people to believe the Bible isn't inerrant. Because when you go back to Jeremiah, it's hard to find this exact phraseology in Jeremiah. So some people say, well, it was Zechariah. It seems like Zechariah chapter 11 is where these verses come from. Because after all, Zechariah mentions 30 pieces of silver. And there's many, many different ways to explain this. I'm not going to seek to delve into that at this point. Maybe I'll put some on the website just with, with notes. I can certainly do that. But it seems to me like there are enough parallels with the quotation in Jeremiah chapter 19 to believe that it was Jeremiah 19 with a, a little bit of a filtering of, of Zechariah in there as well. I mean, we don't have time to look at them in depth, but Jeremiah was told to purchase a potter's earthenware. Even the, the potter's theme comes in here. To gather elders and the chief priests together, all the religious leaders of the people, and to tell them what the Lord was going to do to Judah. He was going to tell them, of the great calamity is going to take place. Listen to Jeremiah 19, verses 3 through 6. Which I think is a loose quote of what's going on. Maybe tied from Zechariah a little bit. Jeremiah stands with his earthenware before sinful, wicked Israel and says, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will, will tingle. So bad is the news and so bad is the destruction that ears will hurt and will feel from the destruction. He says, because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place. I mean, what more is that even than a, than a field that they can't even get into? It's a field of blood. And have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah have ever known. Because they filled this place, here it is, with the blood of the innocent. That's what they did with Christ. They built high places of Baals to burn their sons in the fire, burnt offerings to Baal. A thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it even enter my mind how bad it was. Therefore, Jeremiah continues, verse 6, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. Even renaming this place, the Valley of Death, the Valley of Destruction, the Valley of Slaughter. And what a good picture this is, I believe, of the end of worldly sorrow. It is death, it is destruction, it is burial, and it is disaster. How important it is for us to sorrow for the right things in the right way. And so even this morning, as we've looked at Judas and the poor example that he has been, uh, an example of worldly sorrow, my prayer in my heart for Rock Valley Bible Church is that when we sin, that God would fill our hearts with a godly sorrow and not a worldly sorrow. We might not be tormented like Judas. We might not be on the path to death but might confess our sins and not merely the consequences of it. That our actions don't merely look like repentance, but they are repentance. And that we might be led to life rather than led to death. That's where worldly sorrow leads. Let me pray to that end and we'll finish our time. <clears throat> Lord, how instructive these words are of teaching us how 
Someone can be so close to the kingdom and yet so far away. Judas was so close in the fact that he walked with Christ. And he was so close that he did so many things right after his sin. And yet, so far, because he never knew the forgiveness that came, because he never knew genuine confession from the heart. And so, God, I pray for us at Rock Valley Bible Church. May you change our hearts where our hearts are wrong. Where we look at sin incorrectly, may you cause us to see sin for what it is. And may we sorrow rightly, God, for the sin that that comes our way rather than sorrowing wrongly like Judas did. Oh, Lord, it's in your power, it's in your grasp to do these things. And I pray that you would do that to make us a sanctified group of people who trust not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, but who love you sincerely and dearly and long to worship you in the beauty of your holiness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.